touched me You know my way Even when I fail you I know you love me Your holy presence And welcome just to um, make things a little bit different, there may still be some tomato plants left in the entrance hall. I don't know if you saw those when you came in. Or just at the back of the room, sorry. Uh, so if you want those, you can have them when you leave. We're uh, generous today. Take the tomato plants away if you'd like them. And then uh, we are hoping to end our service this morning by singing together outside as we have been doing. So weather permitting, I don't know what the weather's going to do, but assuming it's dry, we'll go out through these doors, picking up one of the song sheets as you go, and we'll, we'll move around towards the back and finish by singing together. And then we are meeting again uh, at 6 p.m. this evening, starting a new series. Matthew, of course, is not finished, and Steve will be continuing with that in the weeks ahead, but between now and the summer, on the weeks when it's my turn to preach in the evening, we're going to be looking at the Psalms of Ascent. That's a group of 15 Psalms, 120 to 134. And we're calling the series Pilgrim Songs. This evening, we'll look at the first three Psalms, 120 to 122. And our time of worship this evening will include our celebration of the Lord's Supper. So I hope that you can join us for that. And we're going to begin this time of worship with a song that praises the God who leads us all the way on our pilgrimage. And he pours out his amazing grace on us throughout our pilgrimage in this life. This is amazing grace. breaks the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and so much stronger, the King of glory, the King of all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder, who leaves us breathless in awe and wonder, the King of glory. The King of all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You would lay down your life. That I would be set Sing for all that you've done for me. Who 
Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphan a son and daughter? The King of glory, the King of all kings. Who rules the nations with truth and justice? Shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. The King of glory, the King of all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross You lay down your life That I would be set free Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me The King who conquered the grave, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy is the King who conquered the grave. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you will take my place. That you will bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I will be set free. Jesus, I sing for. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here together to worship you. We praise you as the creator of the universe, of our world, and of all of us and all that we have. We thank you that you are the majestic creator, but also our loving Heavenly Father. We thank you for your deep and faithful love for us. We pray that now we meet as your children, we will know that love again. We also pray for those who cannot be with us because of illness, mental health, or spiritual needs. We pray that they will know your presence too and your loving Father arms beneath them. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your deep understanding of the book of Deuteronomy. We thank you that you understood the perfect will of your Father and that you lived the perfect life of obedience. You loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you loved your neighbor and us more than yourself. We are humbled again that for our disobedience, your, your obedience led to the cross. And once again we say, thank you, Jesus, for saving us. We thank you for your victory over disobedience. We thank you that you rose again and after 40 days did ascend to heaven. There you were exalted to the highest place. And we worship you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior and King. We thank you that you are now our High Priest, interceding for us. We can come to the Almighty Father without fear, because we stand forgiven in you. And we are amazed and so thankful. We also want to pray at this moment for the situation in Israel and Palestine. Two peoples at the brink of war, out to destroy each other. This is where you walked, Lord Jesus, and we pray you protect and bless your church there. But we also pray for mercy for both countries. Cause them to turn to you, the living God, so that they can seek peace. Holy Spirit, we thank you. You want to live in the church and in us. We pray you create a new heart in us and write your law on our heart so that we are ready to do your will. Display all your fruit in the church so that we can be your witnesses. Bless Tim this morning when he brings your word to us and help us to listen. Equip us to worship you with all our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We will be turning back to the book of Deuteronomy in just a few moments, but first we're going to read about a very significant event in Jesus' life where he turned to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Matthew chapter 4. <coughs> Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift, up, sorry, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Our next song reflects on Jesus' experience there in the wilderness, and I encourage you to reflect on it also as you listen to the words, Christ our Redeemer, new temptations our.
Now our Sunday school are going to be moving next door. And the transition class will also be uh, leaving with Steve if you're part of that. We'll start with a few pictures. The Scottish National Party. It's probably fair to say that the number one purpose of the Scottish National Party is to achieve Scottish independence. They hope eventually to convince a majority of Scottish people to go it alone. Independence is generally seen as a good thing. Certainly in the 2016 Brexit referendum, a majority of British people voted to leave the European Union. And no doubt there were many different reasons why leavers voted leave. But one of the main reasons surely was independence from Brussels. And when it comes to this church, we consider ourselves to be an independent church. So we belong not to a denomination that is in authority over us. Instead, we belong to the fellowship of independent evangelical churches. So we want to be in fellowship with other gospel churches. We want to work with them, but we also want to be able to make our own decisions. We value independence. And those of us who are parents, don't we hope that our children will grow to be able to thrive independently of us? Don't we consider it healthy when our children don't have to depend on us for everything? Why am I mentioning all this? Well, I mention it because while independence is something that's beneficial in many areas of life, fundamentally, we human beings were not designed to be independent. Our lives as a whole are designed to be dependent. God is the creator and sustainer of life, and our dependence on him is simply a fact. Every time we draw breath, every time our heart beats, we are dependent on God for that breath and that beat. That is the reality of our situation. And one of the main questions the Bible asks us is, are we going to acknowledge that reality? Are we going to live with conscious, willing dependence on God? Or are we going to live lives that try to defy reality and live independently of God? The message of the Bible is, it's appropriate to grow to a certain level of independence from our parents. It may be appropriate for countries or organizations or churches to seek to be independent from certain human authorities. But as human beings, it is the height of madness to seek to be independent of God. It's both sinful and it is doomed to fail. Just ask Adam and Eve. They attempted to break away from dependence on God, and that choice 
launched them into a world of painful toil and loss. Just ask the builders of the Tower of Babel. They attempted to deny their dependence on God, and they came crashing down to a world of confusion. As human beings, we are dependent on God, and we are wise to acknowledge that and embrace it so that we live in conscious, willing dependence on Him rather than living with the illusion of independence. And as we turn now to the book of Deuteronomy, and we find Moses preaching to the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan, Moses wants them to embrace dependence on God. And in the passage we're going to look at, he points them to the dependence test. It's a test that comes in two forms, as we'll see. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we'll read the whole of this chapter. Moses says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and prosper and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to Him and revering Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. 
He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. This is God's word. We said this chapter is about the dependence test. And Moses says here that our commitment to dependence on God will be tested by scarcity and it will be tested by success. First, in verses 1 to 5, it will be tested by scarcity. Will we worship the idol of what I really need? Four times this passage emphasizes that dependence on God is shown by obedience to his instruction. In other words, we can say all we want about depending on him. The proof of it, though, is shown in our obedience. And having reminded the Israelites of that in verse 1, Moses then asks them to remember in verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. That verse tells us a couple of significant things. It tells us none of that time in the wilderness was meaningless time. Not a day's journey of it was irrelevant. The Lord led Israel all the way. Every step of the journey was purposeful from God's perspective. And the purpose was to reveal the state of their hearts. Verse 2, when it says the Lord tested you in order to know what was in your heart, it's not saying the Lord himself didn't know their heart. The point is, he tested them to make known what was in their heart, to reveal it, to bring it out into the open. And the test there in the wilderness was the test of scarcity. They were desperately hungry. The original account of this is in Exodus chapter 16, and it tells us there, two months after they left Egypt, the Israelites were ravenous. Whatever provisions they had carried with them out of Egypt were now done. Their bellies were empty. And here in our passage, verse 3 gives us an important detail. It tells us the manna that God was going to provide was a totally unknown thing. Verse 3 says it was something neither you nor your ancestors had known. 
Why is that detail important? It's important because the hungry Israelites didn't look around the wilderness and say, well, this would be a good time for God to provide some manna for us. Some of that miraculous flaky bread from heaven would really do the trick for us right now. No, they didn't say that because manna was utterly unheard of. It hadn't existed before. In fact, the name manna means, what is it? When the Israelites first saw it, that's what they said. And the name stuck. And they said, what is it? Because they'd never seen it before. They didn't know it was even a thing until it appeared on the ground one morning. And so knowing that, if we rewind now back to the time when they're hungry and the manna has not yet appeared, the Israelites are in a situation that will truly reveal the state of their hearts. They cannot put their hope in the arrival of manna because they don't even know such a thing is possible. So faced with their scarcity, they have two options. They can lean on the Lord in willing dependence and trust Him to provide. Or they can decide that they know better and they're going to depend on their own idea of what's best in the situation. Which option did they choose? What did the test reveal about their hearts? Well, Exodus 16 tells us the people grumbled, and as they grumbled, they said, if only we hadn't left Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. In this situation, we can't really depend on the Lord. What we really need is the food Egypt can give us. We should really be going back there. Now, the big irony is when they were in Egypt, they groaned and they cried out because they were so miserable. But two months after they leave, they're already remembering it as a place of plenty. Oh, for the good old days back in Egypt. Instead of willingly depending on the Lord who saved them from slavery, Instead of trusting that he would have a plan for them, they started worshipping the idol called, What I Really Need. It's a very popular idol. Anytime we're in a situation of need, this idol becomes very tempting. Instead of trusting the Lord who saved us, we are tempted to decide the Lord can't provide for us in our situation. We know what we really need, and the Lord has let us down because He hasn't provided it. For the Israelites in the wilderness, they decided the Lord had messed up by bringing them out of Egypt. What they really needed was to be back there. For you and me, we might decide the Lord messed up by not giving us that job we really wanted, or that boyfriend or girlfriend we really wanted. It might be that we've lost our job or we missed out on a payout or an inheritance we've been counting on or we've lost the health we used to have 
In those kind of situations, it is a real test for us. Will we trust God to provide in his own way? Or will we bow to the idol of what I really need? And then start grumbling because God doesn't provide in the way we think he should. Will we decide if he doesn't serve up what's on our menu, then he's failed us? He couldn't possibly have something better up his sleeve that we haven't thought of or didn't know about. When I was 21, I had found someone I believed I knew would be the perfect wife for me. And I was quite put out that God decided he wasn't going to provide me with that particular lady as my wife. But now, after meeting Megan when I was 24, and having been married to her for almost 20 years now, I can testify that I was an idiot when I was 21. God knew better than me about what I really needed. Back in the wilderness, the Israelites failed the test of scarcity. But God, in his great love and in his amazing patience, he went ahead and taught them that they could depend on him. The middle of verse 3 says, He provided the manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. All through their wilderness journey, the Lord provided. Not only the miraculous daily bread from heaven, but also everything else they needed. Clothing, strength for the daily journey, and whatever else. And Moses says he did it to discipline them as a father disciplines his son. Now we tend to think of discipline mainly in connection with punishment. But here, clearly, the sense is training. The Lord fed and clothed these people so they would learn he can be depended on in our scarcity. He does have the wherewithal to provide what we need. Even if what he provides is something we'd never dreamed of, like manna, something we didn't even know is a thing. And the heart of this is at the end of verse 3. The lesson God was teaching them is that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, when you think that what you really need is bread or some other thing, you can fill in the blank yourself. When you really think you need that, you're wrong. What you really truly need is God himself and what he decrees for you. Depend on him and he will give you anything else that you truly need, which may not be what you expected. The end of verse 3 is one of the most significant and profound statements in the Bible. And its significance and profundity is underlined by the fact 
that when the Son of God was tempted by the devil, he quoted this statement. We read the passage earlier from Matthew's Gospel. Here it is again. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice how Jesus' experience parallels the experience of Israel. Deuteronomy says they were led by God in the wilderness. Here, Jesus is led by God into the wilderness. The Israelites were led there to be tested. Here, Jesus is to be tested too. The Israelites were hungry. Jesus is hungry too. And that's what the devil focuses on. What you really need, Jesus, is bread. Your father brought you out here. But here you are facing scarcity, and he's not providing what you need. But Jesus says, you're wrong, devil. What I really need is what Israel needed when they were facing scarcity. It's what everyone needs when they face scarcity. What I need is God himself, my Father in heaven. I'm going to depend on him. I'm going to trust that he'll give me whatever else I truly need, whether it's bread or something different. So then, if the Son of God himself recognized his greatest need in his scarcity was to depend on his Father, surely you and I have to agree that is our greatest need too. Let's turn away from the idol of our own ideas about what we need and how God ought to provide for us. Instead, let's trust him and obey him in our situation. And he will provide whatever else we might need. So far, Moses has pointed the Israelites back to a time of scarcity in the wilderness. But what is ahead of them is going to be very, very different. Pretty much the polar opposite, in fact. They're headed to a place of prosperity and success. It's described here in verses 7 to 9. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. This couldn't be more different from the wilderness. It's idyllic. It almost sounds like Northern Ireland. Except we don't grow our own pomegranates. Life in the wilderness had been a hand-to-mouth existence. Nothing grew there. The people needed fresh manna every morning. But across the river, over in Canaan, everything will grow. Not just the basic staples, but luxuries like oil and honey. 
And verse 9 points to iron and copper that will open up possibilities for trade and industry. Why is Moses giving these details? He's preparing the Israelites for a new test of their dependence on God. Having previously been tested by scarcity, now they're going to be tested by success. Will we worship the idol of my power? Look at verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Just like he did in the opening section of this passage, Moses emphasizes that dependence on God is shown by obedience to his instruction. You can see that in verse 11. And if we think verses 12 and 13 sound vaguely familiar, that's because we heard something similar back in chapter 6. But there is a significant difference here. Chapter 6 spoke about the Israelites inheriting cities they did not build and houses filled with all kinds of good things they did not provide, and vineyards they did not plant. The focus there was on things that just fell into the Israelites' lap. That will be the situation when they first take the land of Canaan. But here, in chapter 8, the focus is different. This is looking further ahead to the time when they're settled and established in the land, and they have done their own building and farming and trading. They've worked with the resources available to them and they've made a success of it. And if you look down to verse 17, you'll see the way they will be tempted to react to their success. After reminding them in verses 15 to 16 of the lesson from the wilderness years, the lesson that everything they have is in fact from God, Moses says in verse 17, your success will tempt you to question that reality. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Didn't I get up early? Didn't I work until late? Didn't I put my back into it for years? Didn't I sweat buckets building this house? Plowing the fields, tending the herd? Didn't I show a great business head to make the deals that have produced such good returns? Wasn't this success produced by my power and the strength of my hands? And if you and I are honest, don't we sometimes find ourselves in sympathy with that thinking? Don't we sometimes look at what we have and what we have achieved and have our own version of this 
swelling up in our hearts. Look what my power and the strength of my hands have produced. And it doesn't even have to be the big stuff. What about the little successes? Passing your music exam, getting on the cricket team or the football team, winning a round of golf, landing your first job, getting your first paycheck, buying your first car, or buying your next better car. Or what about finding yourself in good health, well into your 70s and 80s, after a life of being diligent about diet and exercise, maybe with a good pension as well, after a life of careful money management. You finally got that new extension on the house where you can sit in the sun with a cappuccino and allow yourself the luxury of a little self-congratulation. Look what my hard work and my wise decisions have produced for me. It's so subtle and so utterly misguided and so damnably idolatrous. In verse 18, Moses says, when you have those moments, when the idol of my power is sucking you in, remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. That good money management you're so proud of, the Lord gave you that money sense. The aptitude for sport or music or study, the Lord gave you that. That self-discipline to work long hours or train your body or watch your diet, the Lord gave you that. That job interview that you nailed, the good performance review you just got, the Lord gave you that too. What about your stunning good looks that draw people to you like a magnet? What about your sparkling wit that makes you so popular with other people? Guess who gave you those good looks and that sparkling wit? When you or I bow to the idol of my power, we are utterly misguided. We've made the mistake of looking at God's good gifts and imagining we produced them ourselves. Daniel Block says, Success may be more tragic than failure, especially if it causes us to forget God and results in pride, smugness, and self-sufficiency. Our faith and faithfulness are not tested only when the Lord drives us to the end of ourselves. They are also tested when everything is going our way. Isn't that true? 
And so if any of us are being seduced by the idol of my power, let's ask God to help us wise up and see the reality of our situation, that every success in our lives, big or small, it's ultimately down to his gracious generosity. Let's acknowledge our dependence on him, not just in words of thanksgiving, but in lives of obedience. And let's consider the example of our Savior. Earlier we looked at the temptation Jesus went through when he responded by quoting from this chapter. But look at that incident again now with the second point in mind. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Earlier, we saw how the devil tried to play on Jesus' hunger, his scarcity, to get Jesus to believe that what he really needed was bread rather than God himself. But this time around, notice how the devil is trying to get Jesus to depend on his own power. The devil says to him, tell these stones to become bread. Aren't you the son of God, for goodness sake? If you tell them to become bread, they will obey you. You have the power. And of course, Jesus did have the power. But Jesus did not come to this earth to bask in his own power. He came to glorify his Father by doing his Father's will. And so, he did not tell the stones to become bread. He told the devil, I live dependent on my Father, not on my own power. I look to him for what I need. Jesus turned his back on the idol of my power. And you and I need to keep doing the same. Because here in Deuteronomy, the end of our passage reminds us following the idol of my power is the way to destruction in the end. That is the challenge of our passage. To turn away from these idols. And as you and I face this challenge, don't all of us have to admit we have often failed the test. Whether we've been tested by scarcity or by success, we have often failed. In our scarcity, we have believed we knew better than God what we needed. And in our success, haven't there been times when we imagined we achieved that success by our own power? But here's the good news. Jesus Christ passed the test for us. We've seen in his encounter with the devil, Jesus trusted perfectly in his Father. He depended 
wholly on his Father. And so when Jesus died and rose again, he died and rose again as our perfect, spotless Savior. His perfect sacrifice on the cross paid for all of our failures. And so when we belong to Jesus through faith in his work on the cross, we can leave the failures of the past behind us. We can move forward in his strength, learning to depend on God in every situation, in times of scarcity and times of success. We can look forward to growing in thankfulness when God gives us success. And in times of scarcity, when our initial feeling is that we don't have what we really need, in those times, we can look forward to developing new trust in God's wisdom. Whatever we might have got wrong in the past, we can move forward in hope because of Jesus. And so this morning, we have reason to respond to God's word with thankfulness and hope. And we're going to do that now as we exit through these doors, following the musicians. We'll pick up a song sheet and we'll move round towards the back. Thank you.